Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I'm going to use a lot of tissues, I think. Good to see you. Wow, you're actually looking, some, some of you. I like to see people's eyes so I know that they're, they're alive in there. But if you want to be quiet, that's absolutely fine. I don't want to pull you out of your samadhi. But uh, every now and then, it's nice to say hi. I want to um, talk tonight on the subject of faith and devotion. And uh, since it is a, since the subject is faith, I thought I'd start out by reading a contemporary prayer that my good buddy and colleague Howie Cohn first turned me on to, which is now a greeting card. It's made the circuit on that level. Dear God, so far today, I've done okay. I haven't gossiped or lost my temper. I haven't been greedy, crabby, mean, nasty, selfish, bitchy, or overindulgent. And I'm very grateful for that. But dear God, in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed. And then I'm probably going to need a lot more help. Amen. This is hard. I mean, it's hard. It's hard enough being here and acting in alignment with your most noble intentions. And it's, as we all know, that much more challenging as we step outside this refuge. And so we often um, need support need support of something larger than ourself. Sometimes it's, it's hard to trust ourselves. You know that feeling? I just can't trust myself. Well, as long as there's a self that you're trying to trust in, it can be kind of dangerous ground anyway. But this issue or this Uh, topic of faith is a really key one 
in practice. As perhaps you know, probably most of you know, it is uh, the first of the five spiritual faculties. It's a wonderful list. I love the list of the the five faculties because it kind of, it, it shows how the process of practice that we're doing here works. But it starts with some quality of, of faith that this, there's a value in doing this. And as there's faith, we make the effort, the second faculty, or we, we generate the energy to practice. You know, you wouldn't just come in here from the street if you picked somebody up from downtown Barry and, and said, hey, try this. I think you'll like it. You know, it wouldn't work. You have to really be motivated to sit still, walk with awareness, and do all the uh, very dedicated work that you're all doing here. So out of faith comes the effort to be mindful. That begets mindfulness. And as the moments of mindfulness build, the third spiritual faculty leads to the fourth, that of concentration, a kind of collecting, gathering of energy, a concentrated awareness that lets us see through our usual confusion. And that dawns as the fifth faculty, wisdom. But it all starts with faith. Now, if the word faith rings some bells for you, as many times it does, there are some alternative translations. Is the word in Pali, sadha, means to put one's heart upon, to really put your heart into, into something. And that can mean... Uh, a quality of trust or confidence, something that lets you say, yes, I can do this or I will do this. Whatever word you call it, there needs to be a a heartfelt source of our effort to practice. Because doubt comes to everyone, one of the the big five, the big five hindrances. It comes to everyone. It was there just before the Buddha was enlightened, the moment before he was enlightened. The last thing to go was doubt, as Mara says. What gives you the right? What makes you think you have the right to become free? And then the Buddha touches his hand down to the earth as a witness to all the work that he's done. So if you have a little bit of doubt from time to time, you know, just uh, cut yourself a little slack, you know. You might just try touching the earth and remembering all the sincere energy and dedication that you're putting into practice. Jesus on the cross Also, in his last, nearing his last moments, crying out, God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
before he becomes truly liberated and free. Jesus also saying, if you had enough faith, you could move mountains. That's a, that's a powerful statement. And from what I, I've, I sense, there might be something more than just the metaphorical level. A consciousness can do anything. But here we are in our practice at the Forest Refuge. And uh, sometimes it seems such a, a solitary practice that we, we need to remember where we can find it and how we can access it. This is the Theravadan path, Buddhist path, is sometimes called the path with no railings. It's different from looking to a god to save us, looking to a guru to tap us on the head and and do his or her magic, looking for anything outside of ourselves. We're going inside and seeing what is there inside that can inspire us that we can surrender to, especially given that we hear all the time, there's no self in here. So what, what can we look to and and surrender in there? So when we're looking or trying to access our faith, it's not that will be saved. It's not even as sometimes people think, well, if you have enough faith, you know, everything will work out. Like I, I, I'm a sports fan, as some of you know, and it's kind of always interesting at the end of, uh, you know, the championship game. And often there's these very beautifully spiritually motivated athletes who said, who say, you know, I believed, you know, I believed God was with me. Thank you so much. I just had enough faith. And I always wonder about the guys on the other side, deeply spiritual, who lost. Does that mean that God forsook them? It's not that everything will work out just as we hope it will, but rather the sadha, the trust, or the confidence is in the process. It's one way that you can think of it. Trust in this process that it is leading onward to something very good, that it possibly can lead to the deepest kind of happiness and peace and truly awaken us. And even more refined, even on a, a, a more immediate level, it's trust in the awareness that can meet the moment. When you say, I don't know, I don't trust myself. You don't have to trust yourself. I don't know 
what I'll do when this happens. You don't have to figure it out. That's the beauty. That as you do this practice more and more, you begin to trust not in yourself, but in the awareness that can meet the moment. As I was saying to somebody in an interview today, it always has. Hasn't it? I mean, everything in your life has brought you to this moment right here, right now, a pretty blessed moment. You know, I'm not referring to the fact that I'm giving a talk, but I mean that we're all here together practicing, being held in the Dharma, a pretty amazingly blessed moment. Everything has led you up to this moment. So where did you go wrong? Can you say you went wrong? And when you look back on that, there is the understanding that if you're clear, if you are not lost in confusion, that your awareness will meet that moment when it comes, the next one and the next and the next. And it's so freeing when you realize... I don't have to figure all this out. I don't know what's going to be. What if I just relate to this moment right now? So much simpler. This moment is so much more workable than all the ones to come that you have no idea what they will bring or how they'll unfold. But you will when you get there. Faith is different from hope, the way I see it. And, and there's, I, I, I love the word hope. You know, I often, probably every email I write, hope you're doing well. You know, hope to, to see you before too long. You know. There's something beautiful about that. But if you're hoping that things will turn out how you hope they will, then there is a a subtle grasping and perhaps a subtle anxiety. What if they don't? I I came across this great line by um, Seneca, the Roman philosopher. He said, you cease to be afraid when you cease to hope because hope is accompanied by fear. So I'm not saying you're bad if you hope, but just notice the the tension in the mind when you come to a sitting and you have any kind of an idea, I hope this is a good one. I hope this day isn't filled with calaces. I hope my retreat this month is one that I don't regret I came to or that I'm really glad that I came to. That's in the future. Right here, right now, this moment is quite workable. It's not that things are going to work out, but that our 
capacity to relate to experience is there more and more as we gain confidence, as we gain trust. There's a, a, a beautiful line. I mentioned it to uh, somebody in, the, uh, in an interview today by uh, Christmas Humphreys, who, who wrote a lot about Buddhist practice, who said, the one miracle that this path has to offer is a change of heart. That's the miracle. Not that it'll all turn out hunky-dory, but that we can train ourselves to open up to this moment and have enough trust that we can meet it, have enough trust that if we're facing in the right direction, it will continue, life will continue to reveal itself to us. Sada or faith takes courage. It does because we're by definition entering into new territory. So something in us has to um, give us enough energy or trust that we are willing to venture into new territory because that's what we're learning to do. We're learning to open up more and more and more. If we're truly going to awaken, it means we're getting out of our comfort zone. And anytime we get out of our comfort zone, then there's likely to be some fear that arises. That's okay. Fear is okay. It's not like, oh gosh, if I had more faith, I wouldn't have fear. That's not so. It's just that the courage to be with the fear and go beyond it is quite extraordinary. Fear is like the membrane, the scout between the familiar and the unknown. Jack Cornfield has a, a beautiful way of putting it. He says, fear is is just saying, about to grow. It's really an ally. It's saying, every time, oh, here's something new. And if you can learn to relate to it, not as an enemy, but as an indication that you're really stretching yourself, then it's great. We, as we sit here, learn to open to our, all the feelings inside all the memories, all the, the emotions. That takes courage. It takes courage to be with this moment just as it is, whether it's an itch on our face or a pain in our knee or a, an ache in our heart or unbounded love and deep bliss. Whatever you're going to experience one thing is for sure, it's going to change. So that understanding is, uh, is a great gift in knowing that this practice, is, it's not about arriving at a particular destination, but it's about being here for the ride, that we can be with this moment as it is and let go 
of the control, the illusion of control that we never had in the first place that wants to fix or bargain. Somehow there's a, a possibility of surrendering. To let go of the sense of self, of who we think we are, the most profound letting go into the stillness, into the silence, into the unnameable, into the unconditioned, that takes a real trust. But it's possible. It really is. I don't know. Did I mention about uh, swimming here last time? Learning to swim? As it's the analogy that I have about, uh, about trust. There you are in this moment and you just don't know what if I really do let go? And the, the, uh, the metaphor that, uh, that, or a simile that I, I use or like to use is, uh, remember how when you first learned to swim and uh, maybe a grown-up put you in the water and said, it's okay, you know, and there you are just kind of like, flailing around. What do you mean it's okay as you're bobbing up and down? Just tread water, just tread, you know. Yeah, easy for you to say as you're going up and down. And then maybe after a while you kind of get it where you don't have to struggle so much. And as you relax a little bit and let yourself tread, it's like so cool. Oh, less struggle? I can stay up. And as you more and more learn to be comfortable and familiar and trust in the water, the ultimate letting go, remember this moment where you just let go of everything and floated? What a miracle that was. Wow. The water was ready to support me all the time. I just didn't know it. I just didn't see it. Oh. I can let go. No effort at all. And there you are, as safe as you can be. It's like that in practice, too. We think we've got to struggle, we've got to manipulate, we've got to maybe do a little bit more of this or a little bit less of that, and then maybe we'll fix things. When really, it's the undoing, it's the not doing, it's just the, the relaxing with presence that allows for life to support you and reveal itself to you. But it takes courage. And there is that doubt that can come just in a moment. Can I really do it? Am I capable of this? Am I worthy of this? We can let that small mind take us in a moment down a dark place and just spin around, compound it with a second dart saying, I can't believe I'm here again. What a, what a doubter I am. 
and we've missed. We've missed what's happening. I came across this quote. I think it's from um, The Course in Miracles or a paraphrase of A Course in Miracles. Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. What would make you think that somehow you don't have the right to be free? I know you see all your shortcomings and you see, oh gosh, so much greed, hatred, and delusion in there. And I have this and I have that. The true freedom is to let go of your ideals of how you should be. One of my favorite lines, the third Zen patriarch says, uh, to live in this realization, to live in the highest realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. Isn't that a comforting line? To be with, that's, that's the highest realization when you're without anxiety about non-perfection, when you're just yourself. And that's the, the gift that you have to offer everyone. You know, when you're around somebody who's trying to be a little bit more than who they are because maybe they're not enough. They're trying maybe to impress by being a little bit more. It's not very impressive, is it? But somebody who is just themselves, what you see is what you get, who is a basically good person, who is basically, like all of us, committed to waking up, how refreshing to see somebody who's just, yeah, I sometimes blow it, I sometimes make mistakes, but um, I'm really okay. Ah, they don't have to say that. You can feel it, and in their feeling it, in their emanating that, they put you at ease, that you can be okay too, just the way you are. Maybe we're not worthy enough What if my karma isn't ripe? Many, uh, a number of years ago, I, I went to a teacher that, that some of us have, uh, and some of my friends learned a lot from, and I sure did, uh, a man named H.W.L. Uh, Punja, or Punjaji, or Papaji. And um, I learned a lot from being around him but um, he, uh, he talked about everybody having the right to be free. This is who you really are. And he kept on saying, you know, don't work so hard. You know, you're already free if you'd only see it, if you'd only notice it. You know. But I had this model of, well, when karma ripens enough, then perhaps... 10 lifetimes from now or 100 lifetimes from now, maybe I can wake up. Maybe. And he was saying, no, 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 no. Right now. So I, of the many 
questions that I that I asked him. I said, you know, um, um, how do I know that I that my karma is ripe? And he talked about it in terms of when you wake up, that you um, that grace comes to you. So that was his kind of reframing of karma. I said, well, how do I know that I that my that the grace will be here for me to wake up. This might not be this time around. And he said, he looked at me, he said, grace. I said, I just tiled him for a moment and I felt him right here. <laughs> grace, grace. He said, look at you. you know, you've come from around the world. Strong intention. Good teacher. Conditions are ripe. Grace. You're neck deep in grace and you wonder if you have grace. We're all neck deep in grace here. Every one of us. Just look at our karma. Everything that has conspired to bring you here. It's amazing, isn't it? All the events, all the people who've supported you. All the longings. All the inspirations. All the circumstances have come together for you and for all of us to practice in this amazingly blessed environment. We're all neck deep in grace. But we can forget in a moment and our faith gets lost. Don't forget. Don't forget how blessed you are. Just use the time well, as the Buddha says. Use this amazingly precious opportunity What if I make a mistake? What if I do anapana when I should be doing choiceless awareness? What if I do vipassana when maybe I should be doing metta or the other way around? What if I should sit longer instead of walking or walk longer instead of sitting? What if I, I don't want to blow it, so many choices, like I, I mentioned the other day. It's okay. That's just your mind. I remember when I was when I was a kid. Um, most most weekends, we would uh, we would go from my family's house in Queens to visit my grandparents in Brooklyn. And um, it always amazed me how my father knew the way to get there. You know, when you're like five or six and you get in a car and you just magically step out on your, your home street and you end up, you know, in uh, an hour later someplace else. How does that happen? And I remember saying to him, you know, I don't think I'll ever be able to figure that out. I won't be able to, you know, it's big enough driving a car, let alone knowing how to get from, I can barely, you know, 
go five blocks, you know. I can't do that. And he, um, and he said to me, oh, sure you will. Sure you will. I will. He said, yeah. You know, the first time you go, you try. You might get lost. You'll see, oh, no, it's not that street. It's this way. And then you'll learn that one. And then you might get lost again. And you'll come back and you say, oh, no, it's not that one. It's this one. It's okay to get lost. That's how you find your way. Don't worry about it. And that's the analogy for our whole life as well. Because we can be so afraid of making mistakes that we get frozen in indecision. Story that uh, that I... I share that was really powerful for me to to see it's okay it's okay to make mistakes it's okay not to know <clears throat> this was in many years ago in uh it was in 1977 i had done my first 3 month course uh, at ims that had just opened up and i knew the dharma was was the only thing i really cared about but i was teaching school in new york at the time uh, I'd been doing that for about 10 years and making pretty good money, $17,000. But it seemed like a lot to me. It was a lot in those days by myself. But I, it was starting to get old. You know, I, If you're not wholeheartedly into teaching, you don't have the energy to match the kids. And uh, I loved it for many years, but I just felt there was something else. But I didn't know whether I should stay teaching come up and work on, on staff here at IMS or go out to um, California, was calling to me, or go to um, have my Asian experience. Yeah. And they all seem like really good options, but I didn't want to make a mistake. If you're at a crossroads in your life, maybe there's, there's something in this for you. And I went round and around and around, and I couldn't figure it out, and finally... Each summer I was out at, in uh, Boulder, Colorado at Naropa during these, these years. And I decided to visit um, this very wise man who had steered me right a number of times before. His name was Reverend Miller. He was a psychic. $5 a reading. Wasn't in it for the money. He was, and he looked like um, Colonel Sanders, you know, just, but a really benevolent Colonel Sanders with a with a, a a very sweet heart, and I said to him, "I'm really kind of stuck here, and I don't, I just don't know what what to do." I gave him the options, and he said, uh, <clears throat> "Well, um, I'm not going to tell you what to do." I said, oh. "He said, but I will tell you one thing." I said, "Yeah," he said doesn't matter. I said, what do you mean it doesn't matter? That's my life you're talking about. (laughs) And he believed in spirit guides and guardian angels and devas and things like that. So he he talked in in that way. Who was I to question him? He says, if you're stuck, 
afraid of making a mistake and don't have the courage or the, the faith to take the next step. Your spirit guides can't help you at all. You're just frozen. But given the information you have, if you take the next step and start putting yourself in motion, then it will lead to the next and the next. And you'll go one way and you'll see, oh, well, no, it's not this way. Let's try another way. Or you'll go and you'll say, oh, yeah, this is the perfect unfolding. Or you'll take a few steps and something else will open up that you could never have figured out. So it doesn't really matter. You just keep on living your life, taking one step after another, given the best information you have now, and life will continue to support you. It will continue to unfold. You'll know what to do. It'll become obvious if you just keep listening. And I'm sure everybody here knows that feeling when they stop trying to figure out and just listen inside. It's right there. There are a number of sources of faith. There's the, the initial bright faith where we get just so inspired. The first time I ever, I don't know if I mentioned it the other night, when I, when I first met Joseph uh, you know, at, at Naropa Institute, and I figured, I saw this guy knows something that I don't, and I want to know what it is. It was so exciting because he was saying it's actually possible to not be run by your neurotic thought patterns, which had never been a thought I'd entertained before. And he was saying it so, and I believed him. Okay, yeah. I remember uh, even before that, my there were a number of sources of bright faith. The first book I ever read, the first Dharma book I ever read was... Um, Autobiography of a Yogi by Yogananda. How many people have read that book? It's pretty cool. You know, the, and I remember the first page, my, a friend of mine had given it to me and was reading. And the first page, there's like three miracles, you know, before you even get down. You know, I'm just kind of rolling my eyes saying, come on, you know, really. And I keep on reading and there's another one and there's another one, you know, by the... 10th or 11th page, I kind of figured out, this guy isn't just pulling your leg. You know, there was something that he was, he was connected with. And I just kind of let go of what I thought I knew. Wow, maybe there's a whole lot more than meets the eye. And uh, that led me to the next thing and the next thing and the next the Buddha's saying, as I think I mentioned it last time, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. I remember when I first heard that one, I was like, wow. It's such a powerful line. If it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. It is possible. And that's why he taught do you remember, just take a moment to remember what ignited bright faith in you. The magic of that. 
Maybe it's possible. I'm going for it. Or I'm checking it out. And that's a, a beautiful source of, of faith. You're on fire. It just carries you so far because the honeymoon, you know, lasts. It doesn't last forever. Another deeper or supportive quality of faith is kind of understanding the teachings and getting them little by little. Oh, yeah, this really makes sense. Oh, yeah, everything is changing. Yeah, that seems to be so. And holding on to changing experience. Oh, yeah, that's, that's not so, such a good idea. Or maybe you have some sense of natural unfolding and it just kind of starts to seep in and um, inspire you. Where you see all the people who've been practicing and, and the benefits that they've gotten and you can be inspired by that. And then a deeper source is um, when we see for ourselves not by reasoning, not by inspiration, but our own what's called verified experience, verified faith, where we see, oh, this is not just theoretical. This, this is real. My second retreat, I had a really powerful experience of verified faith that just kind of crept up from behind me. I was filled with doubt. I was a phony. Everybody around was a phony. The teachers didn't know what they were saying. You know, just, I tried to sit. I couldn't sit. I tried to walk. I'd just be pacing like a tiger. And uh, finally, I just decided to give myself a break and went up to my little cubicle in the retreat center that, uh, that I was sitting at up in uh, Toledo, Washington. And in that, in my space, there was a picture on the, uh, uh, on my desk of, um, or my table, my drawer, of Neem Karoli Baba. I, I forget if I mentioned uh, last time, but the turning point for me, the turning point of faith was reading Be Here Now, as maybe a number of people how many people have read Be Here Now here? Okay. If you're old enough, it probably did it for you. Well, that, that changed everything when I, when I read Be Here Now. And, and uh, Maharaji, or Neem Karoli Baba, just leaped off the pages and right into my heart. And so there was a picture of, of Maharaji on, the, uh, on the, my uh, bureau, kind of smiling at me winking, uh, wink, twinkling in his eye as I'm just turning myself around and around in my, in my thoughts, looking at me with a smile. And basically, I hear him say, I heard him say, hmm, getting pretty freaked out here, aren't we? You know, and laughing. And in a moment, just seeing him and seeing that other reality, it's like it just broke the whole thundercloud and I saw oh I don't have to do that just lighten up you know wow 
Where'd the faith, where'd the doubt go? It was all of a sudden just gone. And I got really excited because I felt or knew I had conquered doubt, right? I couldn't wait to tell Joseph I conquered doubt. Can you hear the setup there? (laughs) Unfortunately, the interview was like, you know, the next day. So I had ample time to go through a whole lot of other things besides that invincible faith. And I went through excitement and then I crashed and then I became exhausted and then I kind of like got confused and I, then I then I remembered a little bit and I had a little bit more faith and then I had doubt. What am I kidding myself? And, I, and just by the time I went into the interview... I came in and Joseph, as he would say, as sometimes I would say, say, so, how's it going? And I said in complete innocence and exasperation, it's always changing. (laughs) And he said, that's it. You got it. Oh, yeah, you keep on saying that, don't you, right? Oh, I get it. It really is always changing. That was, uh, I remember it like yesterday. Like, it just kind of came up from, from around and right into my heart. Oh, that's what they're talking about. How many, different, how many different moods have you had today? How many different thoughts have you had? Let alone sensations. It's always changing, What do you know to be true from your own verified experience that nobody can take away from you? Have you seen how things change? Have you seen, gotten a glimpse of holding on to changing experience and the pain that comes from that? What do you know to be true? That is your verified faith. And that builds more and more as everybody who's come to this forest refuge knows because you've done something to some practice before that has led you to say, okay, I want to keep on going for it. And sometimes it develops into unshakable faith which is a very potent ally where you know no matter what, you're held in the the lap of the Buddha. Or it flowers as devotion, the full flowering of faith. And one of the great sources of our faith and one of the great sources of devotion is um, are the refuges that we said here at the beginning. The refuge in the Buddha, the refuge in the Dharma, the refuge in the Sangha. Now, I, I come from, uh, as I said, uh, I came from a, a bhakti kind of path um, through Be Here Now. And um, 
And then after I got turned on to the Dharma, I, um, uh, it, it felt a little bit dry to me, but there was something so sweet about it and so clean and clear about it that um, I said, oh, this is my path now. But it, was, it sometimes can get dry because actually in those earlier days, Joseph and Jack and Sharon, the people who brought the, the Dharma to the West in, in this lineage, kind of stripped away all the, the devotional elements and the, what they thought of as cultural trappings, which made sense. I had a lot of hesitation about the religious trappings, even when I was, was doing the, uh, uh, the, the, the bhakti path and was in, uh, in this scene in, uh, in New York um, with, with Ram Das. You know, they were doing Sri Ram, J Ram, and all kinds of stuff, and it seemed a little bit sloppy to me. Just give me the Dharma. Give me the Buddha Dharma. And I didn't realize how much devotion there was in, in Buddha Dharma. It took me a while. And it's true, even in the, uh, the Buddha, as it, it says, you know, he discouraged any excess of emotion or veneration. There's this story of Vakali who loved the Buddha, was so, so enamored with the Buddha that he would just stare at him and gaze at him all, uh, all day until finally the Buddha kicked him out of the order. He kept on admonishing him and, and finally he said, this will not do, and he told Vakali to, to leave. And Vakali was so bereft that he was, he was about to throw himself over a cliff because his beloved had rejected him. When the Buddha appears to him, you know, and says, you can look at this form for a hundred years and not see the Buddha. One who sees the Dharma sees the Buddha. And he took him back and actually Vakali became enlightened, as the story goes, as good stories go. So it's right there. Well, you don't want to get too much into devotion, but. At the same time, devotion is a very, very rich source of our practice. The Buddha said, respect and homage paid to those who are worthy is a great blessing. And there's many benefits of devotion. There's a kind of mental purification that comes when you're not filled. You can't be filled with greed, hatred, and delusion when there's a real devotion to one of those refuges or to whatever it is that inspires you. It prevents you from acting unskillfully. It invigorates the mind when you feel that quality of devotion. And it's a great aid in concentration. It leads to, besides invigorating, it leads to joy. It calms the mind. It leads to an ease and it aids in concentration. Because you're forgetting about all self, surrendering the ego and being inspired. What I'd like to do now actually is a, a little multimedia uh, if you will, and play another version of the um, the refuges and uh, the f- one of the first chants, uh, chants that are that are done every morning and evening, um, or most in uh, in Theravadan countries. And this is uh, from a, a CD by um, Kitty Sorrow and Tanisara um, that I 
love and I'm inspired by. So just sit back and take it in. Take it in. Feel the the devotion in in their hearts through their voices. This is what they're chanting. 
Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. He, the blessed one, is indeed noble, the perfectly, perfectly enlightened one, impeccable in conduct and understanding, the serene one, knower of the worlds. He trains perfectly those who wish to be trained, teacher of gods and men. He is awake and holy. I chant my praise to the blessed one. I bow my head to the blessed one. The Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One, apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading to liberation, to be experienced individually by the wise. I chant my praise to this teaching. I bow my head to this truth. They are the Blessed One's disciples who've practiced well, who've practiced directly, who've practiced insightfully, those who are accomplished in the practice. This is... That is, the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings. These are the Blessed One's disciples. Such ones are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverence and respect. They give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world. I chant my praise to this Sangha. I bow my head to this Sangha. What are we devoted to? Not to necessarily a God, somebody who will save us, but there's something very deep inside of us that we are drawn to again and again. So Gil Rinpoche says, true devotion is unbroken receptivity to the truth. And Punjaji, if I can find it here. Says the desire for freedom is the most intense desire. All other desires are on the surface. They rise and fall. The desire for freedom is intense. You must respond to it. When you respond, this desire will bring you home. It will continue to trouble you if it's not fulfilled. This desire must be fulfilled whether you like it or not. Once you hear that call, as, as uh, I remember Trungpa Rinpoche say, the, the, the spiritual path is fraught with perils, so think carefully before you embark on it. But once started, it's best to finish. Your sincerity, Nisargadat says, will guide you. Devotion to the goal of freedom and perfection will make you abandon all theories and systems. Live and, and, and live by wisdom, intelligence, and active love. Whatever name you give it, will or steady purpose or one-pointedness of mind, you come back to earnestness, sincerity, honesty. When you're earnest like this, you bend every incident, every second of your life to your purpose. That's the heart of devotion. It doesn't mean you strain yourself and you contort yourself. You, there's a wise, sincere effort. But when you stay connected to that call, the heart leads you onward. And I'll, I want to share with you, um, as I close this talk, um, 
a time when I got in touch with that devotion that perhaps will remind you. It was, it was during that, that time when I was wondering about um, joining this scene in New York that Ram Dass was, was having. I had done uh, some Dharma practice a couple of years, and, and Joseph had heard that this scene was, that Ram Dass scene was happening, and he, he knew that I was wanting some juice, and I was living in New York, and he said, go check it out. You know, you might find what you're looking for there. So Ram Dass, we had this memorable interview where I, he questioned me about, well, you know, if it's right for you to, to be here, and in the interview, he said, um, well, let me ask you, um, do you love Jesus? And I said, I like Jesus. <laughs> he said, no, do you love Jesus? And I said, um, well, I have great respect for his teachings. <laughs> I don't know if I love him the way you think I should he said oh well do you love krishna i said i like krishna <laughs> you know he just represents this celebratory energy that I, that i i relate to so much just loving life and you know i really like that archetype i don't know if I, I don't know if i can say i love krishna he said um, well do you love god and i said well you know ramdas um, <laughs> i was raised uh, as a jew and um, my um, my image of god it might have been from my kids bible or whatever but there was this, whenever I hear the word God, I think of this really big, strong guy with a beard and a book in one hand and a pen in the other saying, you're going to have a good day and you're going to have not a good day. And I, I don't know if I, it kind of put the fear of God into me rather than the love of God. So when I hear the word God, I translate it as dharma, which is for me just the perfection of everything, the mystery of everything, and how perfect it is. And then he said, well, do you love the dharma? And I said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He said, you sure? I said, Definitely. Then he said, well, have you ever told the Dharma that you loved it? I said, no. He said, well, go ahead. I said, what do you mean? He, he said, just, just say, you know, I love you, Dharma. And I looked at him like, really? He said, yeah, good, you say it. Say, I love you, Dharma. I'll say it with you. You say it. We'll both say it together. I felt like a complete jerk, you know. But there I was. I said, okay, I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. And I said, I love you, Dharma. And he repeated. And um, 
It was about the, the fourth or fifth time that I really felt it. I just said, I love you, Dharma. At which point, tears started rolling down my cheeks. And at which point he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. (laughs) That was a very important moment for me. As much as I had completely been inspired by Buddhist practice, I hadn't gotten in touch with how much I loved the Dharma. And I would say, undoubtedly, the same is true for every one of us. Just think of how much you love the Dharma. Why else would you be doing this? Whether you love the Dharma or love the truth or you call it, whatever you call it, there's something, you have heard a call that you can't ignore. And that's what you can stay connected to and feel a deep devotion to. What amazing grace that you heard that call and that you couldn't ignore it. This is a source of tremendous devotion. And I really encourage you, encourage all of us to stay connected, to, to really um, have an openness to that place inside that is so moving. Even when you wish it wouldn't call you, there it is. There's something stronger than all your doubts, all your fears, all your judgments, all the things that seem to get in the way, there's something stronger that's kept leading you on through it all. Isn't that amazing? That's a source of real devotion, to feel that grace that we've all been touched by. So I'll I'll close with one of my favorite passages from Shantideva, who says... As a blind person feels when they find a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. The tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life. The bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life. The cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated. The sun that dispels darkness. The butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. Let's sit for a moment.
So now let's let's end with the sharing of our blessings together. And when we do it, you might just, rather than reciting it as a recitation, something that's done, really reflect on your blessings and share them with everyone, with everybody here, with everybody in the world. We're all blessed. Let's really enjoy sharing our blessings. Through. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.